Radio Mano Papachango. I saw an amazing film last night called The Source Family. It's about uh, this sect that um, sprung up in the... um, Sprang up? Sprung up? It sprang up. It sprung up. It has sprung up. Fuck, I don't know. Anyway, the sect in L.A., in Hollywood, in fact, in the early 70s, very strange, interesting situation where uh, this guy, this sort of sort of superhuman dude, actually, uh, in some ways, um, made a shit ton of money, was a war veteran, was uh, not really a bodybuilder. But, you know, back in the day when really strong Men looked sort of like normal men. Um, he was this super strong dude and was a martial artist and killed people in the war and then was involved in a couple of murders after the war. He always got off on self-defense. He started all these restaurants, made a lot of money um, and was sort of a super intense, seemingly troubled, but very charismatic guy. Um this this cult sprang up around him and he there it was again sprang i can't get away from that word um this cult uh manifested around him and he went with it and ended up with like this all these living the life of a guru he had the rolls royce he had the 130 followers he had the rock band they had the mansion you know, the whole nine yards. And then, of course, it followed the typical trajectory where he decided that he needed to have 13 wives and, you know, got into sex, which sort of in these things often leads, uh, you know, opens the door to death and destruction. Anyway, I won't tell you how it ends, but um, it's a documentary, so it it ends the way it ended. Uh, But I found the second half of the film to be extremely moving um, because it left me wondering. um, It left me wondering, like, maybe was this guy actually something beyond a normal human being? And ironically, the thing that triggered that thought for me was that there comes a point in his life, a very pivotal moment in his life where he decides that, in fact, he's not anything special, that he's just a man. And if you see the film, it's on Netflix. It's called The Source Family. If you see the film, uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. It, it's a very pivotal moment, and it's it seems that it's the moment when he would have been most motivated to stick with his story and demand the adulation of his followers. And, in fact, what he did was came to the conclusion that he was just a just a person and that this had all been a mistake and in doing that he made me think like fuck maybe this guy really was something special because 
you know, that's sort of the ultimate achievement is that humility. I've often said on this podcast, one of my favorite quotations is to admire those who seek the truth, but flee from those who claim to have found it. Uh, And uh, this guy... (laughs) <laughs> what was his name? Father Nod or some weird shit like that. Um, but his real name was Jim Baker. I mean, you go from the most run-of-the-mill conventional Jim Baker, you know, and then, of course, he, he ends up being, you know, thinking he's God. And there was another televangelist in the 80s named Jim Baker, Jim and Tammy. If any of you are old enough to remember them, they were really something completely sort of you know the same thing they had a sect right but it was a tv sect and they were these sleazy bizarre people who got people to send them money you know uh from all over and they had a jet and all that and tammy tammy faye baker was this you know wore these huge fake eyelashes and fake fingernails and fake hair she was just this this parody of a human being both of them were I think there's probably a documentary about them out there, too. There must be something about the name Jim Baker that makes you nuts. Although my sister had a friend named Jim Baker who was actually a really nice guy. Also went by the name of Squeeze for some reason. I never quite understood. Um, Anyway, so I'm going to play a little later uh, a song called If You See Her, which is by Peter Burby, who is the guy who listens to this podcast, who dropped by Portland a couple of months ago, and we had a beer. He's a musician, uh, very successful, uh, kind of a a star, I think. Um, He was here visiting a friend of his who's an actress, and she was taping a TV show, and there's all this sort of glamour vibe around those two. Um, Anyway, he... uh, he gave me permission to use some of his music, and uh, so I thought I'd play his song, If You See Her, uh, just to, as a way of thanking him for that amazing movie recommendation. But that'll come in a little while. For now, I want to remind you to get your Talking Out My Ass shirts, if you're into that. I don't know whether I should um, get a separate hosting account for the Talking Out My Ass series or just slip them into the Tangentially Speaking Occasionally, I don't do more than one or two a month at this point. Um, let me know if you have an opinion on that. I, I don't, if it bothers, like I know some of you don't want to listen to that, but I assume it's no big deal. You can just delete it or skip it or whatever. If it is a hassle for some reason, some technological reason I'm not aware of, let me know and I'll spend the 20 bucks a month and set up a separate account for it. Um, Oh, yeah, Talking About My Ass shirt. So we've got them in stock. They're uh, really cool, designed by Adam McDade. It's a chimp lying in a hammock with a microphone, which I guess is supposed to be me in some way. Um, But anyway, they're in stock, and Mom will send them out to you if you order them. I've been really um, gratified to see, like, a lot of you have started ordering through my Amazon affiliate uh, link um, since I've been reading some of the things people have been buying. I guess that reminds people to do it. And uh, so that's that's really cool. It's a great way to support the podcast. Just like take a little money from Amazon and give it to us. Uh, so I just looked at uh, things that have been ordered in the last week. Uh, some pretty interesting stuff. Some anti-gravity batteries Micro start jump starter personal power supply. I have no idea what anti gravity batteries are, but I think they should float. 
certainly in air, right? They should just sort of be like, you know, like you're on the space shuttle and there are batteries floating around. Uh, let's see. We got under books. The simplest and most effective training system for raw strength, second edition. All right. I hope that works for you. Catch-22, great book. If you haven't read Catch-22, highly recommended. It. It's funny, tragic, subtle, bizarre, surreal, historical. It's a wonderful book and also um, a great film. Actually, one of those zany 70s films. Um, and if you're doing a zany 70 films festival you might want to also include the film based on um, the great Kurt Vonnegut book Slaughterhouse Five that was also a really interesting film um, and a great book oh man if you haven't read that Slaughterhouse Five people Kurt Vonnegut amazing amazing and like Catch-22 funny profound bizarre uh, just it, it's it's sort of checks every box a novel can possibly um, check. He, Kurt Vonnegut, as I may have mentioned on the podcast in, in the past, was in World War II in the military, and he was taken prisoner by the Germans and being held in an underground bunker. I think it was like a meat storage area or something. And, and he was he and some other prisoners were forced to butcher animals I think was what they were doing and they were in Dresden and while they were down in this bunker the allies um, firebombed Dresden intentionally destroyed the city uh, with these bombs that would spread fire um, Dresden had no military value there were no munitions dumps and bases no it wasn't an important transportation hub this was a stage in the war where um, the Allies felt that the best way to end the war was to demoralize the Germans. So it wasn't just about fucking up their military capacity. It was about getting Germans who thought that they were safe from the war completely freaked out and convinced that nobody's safe from this war. So even though your city has nothing to do with the war other than the fact that it's a German city, but it's not of no strategic importance, it's a historical um, landmark. It, it, it was like Prague. It was this beautiful, full of beautiful architecture and ancient churches. And um, so they felt safe. Like, no, nah, they're not going to bomb us. Why would they bomb us? Right? Well, fuck you guys. So they bombed it, wiped it out, uh, completely decimated the city. And uh, Kurt Vonnegut and his um, comrades uh, were underground. And when it was over, they came out and they were in the middle of a fucking nightmare. And the Germans forced them to go and clean up bodies. And, and I mean, you can just imagine the nightmare that was. And this is before he was a novelist, before he even tried making any money from writing. Um, and that book is in some ways about that experience, but it's so much more. Anyway. Kurt Vonnegut, catch um, uh, Slaughterhouse Five. Uh, what else? Leaves of Grass. Uh, Walt Whitman, amazing book. Somebody ordered through my site. Very cool. Uh, I'm going to read you a little poem from Walt Whitman here in a few minutes. Uh, let's see. Somebody bought an Apple iPad Air. Very cool. Uh, that's a pretty sweet thing to be buying. Uh, what else we got here? Out. Up, seven types, set, new, top, unique design, sex toy, adult products, crystal glass, 
transparent calabash-shaped anal butt plug. Okay, that sounds to me like a bad translation from Chinese. Calabash-shaped? What the fuck is that? (laughs) Do you want a butt plug shaped like a calabash? What the hell is a calabash? A gourd? I don't know. And it's an anal butt plug, right? What other kind of butt plug is there? A non-anal butt plug? A vaginal butt plug? That doesn't make any sense. Anyway... I hope that works out for you. If you ordered the um, the anal calabash-shaped anal butt plug, you can drop me an email. Let me know how that's going for you. Uh, Nordicware 365 indoor-outdoor kettle smoker. Sweet. Somebody's smoking up some fish or some meat. The Carhartt composite toe hiker boot, Apache brown leather, real tree, extra camo nylon, size 11. Hope those fit. And the Ray-Ban Aviator sunglasses, gray and green. Now, I want to know, is the person who bought the the hiking boots the same person who bought the Ray-Bans? Because they're going to be hiking in style. A couple of weeks ago, our friend Justin, uh, who was in episode 99, I think, Justin the Fireman, uh, invited Cassie and me to join him and his his buddies out at the lake to... um, experienced the Perseid meteor shower, which was very cool, watching shooting stars. Uh, We had a rowboat. We went out in the middle of the lake and sort of lay back on the rowboat and just watched the shooting stars fall. And it reminded me of when I did a Vipassana meditation retreat a long time ago. It was when I had first arrived in Barcelona, so it must have been 90, maybe 91. My buddy Marcos invited me to to do this with him. And um, so I went out and did this thing. It's 10 days. For those of you who don't know about this, they, they do them all over the world. So if this appeals to you, uh, it's something you can look into. Vipassana, uh, spelled with lots of silent S's. V-I, V-I, well, look it up. Vipassana, V-I-P-A-S-S-A-N-A, I think. It's a type of um, Buddhist, meditation technique. So it's a non-religious thing. It's not a sect. It's not a cult. It's just a place where you can go to get away for 10 days and uh, learn this meditation technique, which is very simple, but it does take some time to to get your wrap your head around it. But it's 10 days of silence. There's nothing, there's no reading, no radio, no podcast. There's no, no eye contact, no conversation. So you are around other people, but the whole idea is just to give them their space and they give you space to be in your head. And you do you go into the main room and listen to a recording of this guy, Guenka, who was the great teacher who's dead now, but they recorded his teaching. So you can listen to that and, you know, learn the technique. And then you spend the rest of the time just sort of wandering around, taking walks, thinking and it's pretty intense. Ten days with nothing coming in. It's kind of the same philosophy as um, sensory deprivation, right? The floating, uh, where you've got nothing coming in, so it gives you a chance to sort of process stuff that's accumulated in your brain that you are always running. You know, there's always more stuff coming in than you can process. So there's, you're always backlogged, which causes a lot of stress, which also distracts us from thinking about the big things in life because we're always dealing with all the little bullshit. 
And so this is a chance to have no little bullshit coming in at you. And so you process whatever bullshit there is that's accumulated, the the daily stuff that's there. And then you get through that and then you get to a deeper level and then you work through that and then you get to deeper levels and deeper levels. And I'll tell you, 10 days of silence, you can get into some pretty deep shit. I was remembering friends I had when I was four, five, six years old and, you know, things that memories that have been in my head for 20, 30 years that I hadn't thought about in all that time. Um, I was having some pretty profound experiences. Very interesting. Um, and I was, I've always had this problem with, uh, with Buddhism where I, I really respect and, and resonate with a lot of what Buddhism teaches about not clinging to things and, um, not, uh, not, not trying to avoid difficult things, but just sort of take things with, with equanimity, let them come, let them go, have a sort of free, relaxed vibe about relationships and money and all that. And I think I do pretty well on those levels. But of course, there is this conundrum of if you meet someone that you really feel uh, attracted to you you don't want to let them go you want to you want to deepen it you want to pursue it you want to feel the richness of that and it's something that Cassie and I are dealing with right now actually as we're thinking about moving back to Spain and traveling and leaving Portland there are some people here that we really love and that we're gonna miss a lot and that's hard you know even the city itself i was driving around the other day and i was thinking like fuck you know i really know my way around this city i know the shortcuts and there's a sort of affection that i feel toward the place um so even the place we're gonna miss because we'll come back but it'll be different you know and we won't be living here we'll be passing through which is a very different kind of experience anyway i was remembering one night i was walking by myself and I was thinking about this conundrum of how do you love because one of the ways to not get clingy is to not let yourself love right that's sort of the simplest way to deal with this conundrum like how do I how do I love someone and not want to control them and not want to force them to be part of my life, even if they don't want to, or the, you know, how do I love someone and not miss them when they die or when they leave or when I've moved on or they've moved on, which has been a big thing in my life because there's been a lot of moving on over the years. And, um, and and I thought, you know, I don't want to be one of these people who never feels love. I don't want to be someone who never feels a connection because I'm constantly protecting myself from the pain of that connection being lost. How do I do that? How do I have both? And And I'm looking at the sky and at that instant, a shooting star just went across the sky. And I felt like, whoa, all this like joy that you feel when you see a shooting star. And then it was gone. And I wasn't sad. Because it never occurred to me that it was a tragedy, that it didn't last forever. It was what it was. 
It was beautiful. It was great. It made me feel privileged to see it. But it never entered my mind to say, what a tragedy that that only lasted for a second. I got a lot of really positive feedback about the, the poetry thing I did last week. So I thought I'd, I'd uh, introduce you to a couple more poems that I really like. And they have something to do with, with nature and stars and overthinking things and, uh, you know, the theme of the, of the week, perhaps. This is called The Tables Turned, and it's by William Wordsworth. Uh, and then it's, I guess it's a subtitle, An Evening Scene on the Same Subject, it says. Up, up, my friend, and quit your books, or surely you'll grow double. I don't know what that means. If that means you're going to get fat or that you're sort of bent over, I'm not sure what the grow double means. But anyway, up, up, my friend, and clear your looks. Why all this toil and trouble? The sun above the mountain's head, a freshening luster mellow through all the green, all the long green fields has spread his first sweet evening yellow. So he's talking about the, the golden hour where the sun's going down and you get that beautiful golden light. I'll read that stanza again. The sun above the mountain's head, a freshening luster mellow through all the long green fields has spread. His first sweet evening yellow. It's nice. Books, tis a dull and endless strife. Come, hear the woodland linnet, how sweet his music. On my life there's more of wisdom in it. And hark, how blithe the throstle sings. He, too, is no mean preacher. Come forth into the light of things. Let nature be your teacher. She has a world of ready wealth, our minds and hearts to bless. Spontaneous wisdom breathed by health, truth breathed by cheerfulness. One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good, than all the sages can. Sweet is the lore which nature brings. Our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous forms of things we murder to dissect. Now that's a line I've remembered since I read it in college in the 80s. We murder to dissect. In order to take something apart, see what's inside, how things fit together, what's the structure, we have to kill it. We murder to dissect. Enough of science and of art. Close up those barren leaves. Come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. That was written in 1798. So it's about stop thinking. Just come out and get the immediate experience. Stop reading about nature. Come out and take a walk. Put down your book. Come out here. Look at what's happening. Because there's a wisdom in immediate experience that you'll never get from those books. The books are like, the books are like a diet book or a book telling you about exercise or that book that somebody ordered about, you know, raw strength. You can read all that shit forever and you'll never get the thing you're reading about. The books are a guide, but you have to go out and do the thing, right? You have to go out and have the experience. All right, so I'll read this again all the way through. 
Up, up, my friend, and quit your books, or surely you'll grow double. Up, up, my friend, and clear your looks. Why all this toil and trouble? The sun above the mountain's head, a freshening luster mellow, through all the long green fields has spread his first sweet evening yellow. Books, tis a dull and endless strife. Come, hear the woodland linnet. How sweet his music on my life. There's more of wisdom in it. And hark, how blithe the throstle sings. He too is no mean preacher. Come forth into the light of things. Let nature be your teacher. She has a world of ready wealth, our minds and hearts to bless. Spontaneous wisdom breathed by health, truth breathed by cheerfulness. One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil, and of good than all the sages can. Sweet is the lore which nature brings. Our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous forms of things we murder to dissect. Enough of science and of art. Close up those barren leaves. Come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. William Wordsworth. Okay. And the other one I wanted to read, which is a very similar sentiment, is Walt Whitman, who wrote Leaves of Grass. American mystic, uh, very much part of the transcendentalist uh, movement, which basically were like these these American thinkers who were sort of Buddhists, but most of them had never heard of Buddhism. Um, Whitman, Thoreau, Emerson, um, I think Emerson had heard of Buddhism and and, uh, had done some studying of Eastern texts, but this was all you know, before most of the stuff was translated uh, into English. So what they knew was uh, was quite limited. Anyway, this is called When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. It's very short. Um, and it's written in free verse as opposed to what I just read, which is much more structurally formal. Uh, Whitman just sort of wrote what, what came out of his head. It was very, very interesting. Anyway, uh, it's called When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I, sitting, heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. Okay, poetry lesson over. Uh, this week's guest is Alice Drager, who is a very interesting woman who uh, is in sort of got herself in a bunch of trouble over a blowjob. <clears throat> That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, she is a historian of science. Uh, some people call her a bioethicist, but she doesn't like that um, because that term has sort of been co-opted by um some of the people who have been causing trouble for her. She's a very, very knowledgeable. She's an author. Her book that just came out recently is called Galileo's Middle Finger, which isn't really about Galileo so much as it is about her 
um, sort of ongoing conflict with the, the medical academic establishment. And that conflict has um, reached a crescendo just in the last few days. She resigned her position at uh, Northwestern University uh, over this blowjob. Now, she was not involved personally in the blowjob. What happened was that um, she uh, edited an issue of Atrium, which is a journal published by Northwestern University's Medical Humanities and Bioethics Program. Each issue focuses on a different theme, and each contributor is expected to explore the theme in thought-provoking ways. So in the winter of 2014, she um, edited the, the, the journal, and the theme was Bad Girls. I'm reading, by the way, part of this, I'm reading from a, an article that's in Huffington Post called Academic Freedom and the Meaning of Courage by Jeffrey R. Stone. Uh, if you want to, I'll, I'll have a link to this article on my webpage if you want to read more about this. Anyway, what happened was that there, there was um, an article included uh, called Head Nurses. Um, and in this essay, uh, William Peace who is disabled, told the story of how 36 years ago, a young woman nurse with whom he had grown friendly gave him a blowjob during rehabilitation as a way to address his deep concerns that after a serious health problem had left him paralyzed, that he could never be sexually active. Now, I haven't read the article, but from that description, it certainly sounds to me like this isn't about sex. This was about him having a personal relationship with a nurse and she recognized how upset he was that he thought he'd never be able to have sex again and she proved to him that in fact he could um anyway she uh, alice drager included this this article in that edition and uh According to the article I'm reading now, Peace's essay, which was written and edited in a responsible, mature, and thoughtful manner, so upset the authorities of Northwestern University's School of Medicine that they ordered the story removed from the online version. Uh, so this sort of triggered a series, a, a struggle between um, Alice Drager and the university, uh, which has ended in her resigning this year, and that I mean this week, and that has led to uh, a lot of media coverage of her. So I, uh, she was, I'd recorded this a couple of weeks ago with her and I was sort of saving it because it's a, an evergreen. Um, I was going to put it out next month, but I thought, well, let's just put her at the head of the line here since she's getting a lot of media attention. And I thought it would be interesting for people who are uh, aware of who she is to hear this conversation. So I encourage you to check her out. She's on Twitter. She, she she came to my attention when she was live tweeting from her, uh, I don't remember if it's her daughter or son, but she has a teenage kid um, who was getting a, was in a sex ed class. And she went to the class and sat in the back and was tweeting about how incredible it was that all they were talking about was abstinence and how sex will kill you and, you know, all the diseases and the dangers and nobody talked about pleasure and intimacy and joy or any of the other things that we all know are involved with sex more often than, you know, death and destruction. Uh, she live tweeted that that went viral and I thought that was really cool. And I got in touch with her and she agreed to be on the podcast and here we are. So I really hope you enjoy this. Um, 
and I hope that you'll uh, tweet your encouragement to her. She stood up for what she believed in, which was academic freedom, which we all should believe in, but which is under fire from all sorts of directions in the United States these days. And uh, she decided that if the university wasn't willing to say that people who work there are guaranteed academic freedom, guaranteed the right to say in a responsible, mature way, whatever they believe is true, then she doesn't want to work there anymore. And good for her, because most people would have just kept their head down and kept their mouth shut. And um, as you'll see, that's not her style at all. And we need a lot more people like her out in the world standing up for the things that really matter. Um, And my God, academic freedom has got to be at the top of that list or near the top. So... Thanks for listening to Tangentially Speaking. Tell your friends, thank you for your emails and your support through Fund What You Love. If you've got a project that could uh, use some support, feel free to talk to Danny at Fund What You Love about setting up your own project. He's setting up a program now where he'll help you design your campaign, your video, your whole thing to uh, try to attract some funding. So um, thank you for those of you who support the podcast podcast through that. Thank you for those of you who support it through Amazon or through donations or just through listening and thinking about the things that we talk about here. You're all welcome. Uh, It's great to be part of this community with you. Talk to you next week. This is called If You See Her. The band is Among Savages. The dude singing and who wrote this is Peter Barbie, B-A-R-B-E-E. Oh
to my door, standing face to face. She didn't come to see or find a missing piece. She came to give me back for her chance to leave. I didn't fall asleep. I was waking up looking for something to get me through the maze of love. And when I finally woke and began to feel, I realized what I had wasn't real. I left her. I left her. I left her. I am very happy that uh, Alice Drager has. Is it Drager or Drieger? Rhymes with Kegger. Kegger. So you said it right the nice, first time. Nice. Drager. Alice Drager has uh, has found some time to join us on Tangentially Speaking. You have been around a long time uh, in my sort of mental space, um, but I didn't really connect the dots until your recent thing where you were um, live tweeting your son's sex ed class. Yeah, I kind of call myself Zelig of the sex world, right? I show up in all these different places, and then yeah. people are like, oh, wait, that was you, and that was you, and that was you. Well, that's exactly what happened to me. It's like, you know, I, I thought that was really funny and instructive and brilliant that you did that. And then, you know, I thought, oh, it'd be great to get her on the podcast. And then I saw somewhere that you knew Dan Savage. So I thought, okay, well, maybe this is doable. And then, uh, but you were so, like, inundated with press that I thought I'll wait a month or two. And so then in that month or two, I just started like, oh, wait a minute. That's Alice Drager did that thing about the Yanomami and the, the, the controversy over Shagnon. And oh, right. I read that years ago, you know, and then you just pop up all over the place. Michael Bailey and his research, you're associated with him and you're at Northwestern as well. Is that right? Yes, I am. I yeah. work part-time there by choice. But yeah, so I, I think I have a forgettable name and that's why I'm in situation. <laughs> but it's kind of nice because it means you don't carry around a lot of baggage, right? Well, you, yeah, but I think it's it's not just your name. I think it's also that you do a lot of different things. So yeah. you pop up in different areas. You know, if you were just sort of pounding the same, banging the same drum all the time, then you would be known as that person. 
Um, yeah. But, you know, you're doing all this stuff with intersex kids and then you're over here doing your son's thing. And then there's, uh, you know, like, what's that have to do with the Venezuelan Amazon? You know. <laughs> well, I'm really lucky because my partner uh, and I made an agreement years ago, a few years into having our kid. And that was that I would do primary child care in exchange for basically him paying the bills and I got to do what I wanted professionally. So that's what I've done all these years is pretty much just work a small part-time job with Northwestern where I teach one course a year. But otherwise, I'm kind of on a permanent sabbatical and he funds my research. So I get to do kind of what I want. I can't do it at the pace I would normally do it because I do. I am the primary caregiver for our kid, although he's now 15, so that's a lot easier. So it's allowed me to go in a lot of different directions and be highly reactive, where normally I wouldn't be able to do that sort of thing. Now, that said, the sex ed thing was an accident. Um, my son invited me, and I didn't go in thinking, oh, I'll live tweet it. Although, as I sat down, I thought, oh, a lot of my followers follow me because of my pieces about sex ed and Pacific Standard. And so I thought, well, they'll be interested in what I'm seeing here. So that's what I did. And then it was really shocking to me because that was nine o'clock in the morning when my son got home at three o'clock, it was national. And I just, I didn't see that coming. And that was really actually kind of disconcerting. And <laughs> because I don't normally, I don't normally bring my kid into my work. And he was very much part of that, nor my school district and my son's teachers and the principal. And I got banned from school. So it was a big day. Well, if this is like, you know, you're, you're describing your career as sort of a hobby, um, you know, secondary to raising your son and taking care of the, the house and all this stuff and your deal with your husband. If this is a hobby, I can't imagine the hell you'd be raising if you were doing this full time. Well, if, that's the funny thing, right? Like if I was working full time as a normal academic, I wouldn't have time to do all this stuff. Uh -huh. I need classes and going to committee meetings and everything. So it's been a big income sink for us in terms of I've lost a lot of my income because I don't work a normal full time job. But um, I wouldn't quite say it's a hobby because it's way too stressful to be doing <laughs> what I do. It requires therapists and alcohol. So it's it's uh, most most hobbies don't require therapists and alcohol. So um, I would say what I've done is raise my career and raise my son at the same time, and both of them have cost me a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, if your son is anything like your career, he must be an amazing kid. He's really amazing. I mean, the stuff he says nowadays is just so incredible. He also just did his first Freedom of Information Act request from the school. He's, yeah. He's just turned 15, which I think is really cool. He says stuff to me like, you know, sometimes democracy works best without the government. And I think, holy shit, like I didn't understand that when I was 15. But it's because he's been raised kind of next to this book I just finished, the Galileo's Middle Finger book, that he... He's kind of been raised up with that book, and he and the book kind of reflect each other's maturity as they go along. So it's been really, really cool in some ways. Wow, that's great. And, it, and it's a sibling that doesn't, you know, steal his food and drop spiders down his back or anything like that. So it's been a good sibling to him, I think. Right. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I sometimes think of, of books as kids. You know, I've only published one book so far. I'm working on the second, but... Um, I've been working on the second for so long that I sometimes tell people I feel like I've been pregnant for four years, <laughs> you know, and I've got like a four-year-old in my gut. And you get the same infanticide fantasies every now and then with your book, right? <laughs> well, like getting it out, you know, it's like if you get it out within nine months, it's still small enough that you can sort of, you know, push it out there. But once it gets past a certain size, getting it out of you is kind of, it becomes much more complicated in my experience. 
I agree. I mean, the book I just finished took eight years and it was supposed to take maybe two. And so that was really um, very uncomfortable pregnancy at the end. And I really wanted to be done with it. And my feeling was if I have to die to birth this thing, fine, but I, <laughs> I don't want to deal with it anymore. Yeah. So. Yeah. One way or another. Um, well, let's not whine too much about being authors. <laughs> okay. <'Cause- laughs> I have a tendency to do that. And it's funny, before I I actually started writing for a living, I had zero tolerance for that. You know, the Hemingway's, oh, writing's easy, just sit down at the table and bleed, you know, those sorts of lines. It was always like, get a job in a fucking slaughterhouse, you know, you (laughs) pampered writer bastard. And now I hear myself doing it and I think, oh, no, what have I become? Um, anyway, I got a copy of Galileo's Middle Finger. Uh, you sent your publisher sent it to me. It just arrived a couple days ago, though, so I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing. But I, I really appreciate your writing style, which is, and I, I've read enough that I can recommend it uh, to people. It, your writing style is very light and um, conversational, and easy to read, and funny, and lively, and. It's good to read that, especially in science, because I think that kind of vitality is missing in a lot of science communication. Well, thanks. Yeah, you know, the the book is kind of heavy in subject matter. It's about wars that occur between academic researchers and identity politics activists. And I'm sympathetic to both sides, but in the end conclude that we really need academic freedom to be able to find out what's true about the world. That's the only way to make the world really better. But um, in order to bring people kind of along that intellectual journey, I thought it was important to write in a way that they would, that respected them as readers, that they would appreciate being able to read something that was good to read. So there was a lot of obvious editing that went into the book and a lot of picking and choosing of which parts of stories to tell, not not in a way that made any of them false by any means, but in a way that sort of parsed it down a lot smaller than I would have made it if it were entirely up to me to record as a historical piece. I really wanted to respect the readers and give them something worth reading so that, you know, as they went along this heavy story and got this kind of heavy lesson, that it would be worth something to them as a reader. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, I mean, in some ways, it's not what I expected just looking at the cover and the title. You know, I was expecting a historical analysis of Galileo as a rebel and maybe Copernicus and, you know, Tycho Brahe or something like that. And uh, but it's really very much about contemporary battles in science. It is. And they're actually changing the cover for the paperback because of people saying, I thought this book would be a history book and I got confused. So they're actually changing it to a more sort of simple cover that has some DNA kind of graphic references to it, which I think works. And they're actually changing the subtitle. Um, The original subtitle, as we proposed it to the press, as my agent and I proposed it, was uh, Heretics, Activists, and One Scholar's Search for Truth, because it is kind of a memoir where I go through what I've been through. The problem with that is, to be frank, a lot of men won't read memoirs by women. And so we thought we would narrow the audience too much if we made clear that the book was actually 20 years of a memoir. And so, in the, interestingly, in the paperback edition, the subtitle, I forget what it's being changed to exactly, but it sort of shifts back to making sure people understand it's kind of a personal story, but with all these other people's stories. So I think that'll help. Um, but at the same time, it's been it's been interesting to, to do a book that was kind of a memoir and at the same time a sort of closeted memoir in the sense that we weren't going to tell people outright that it was a memoir because we didn't want to just people to come to it and think, oh, this is just going to be a personal story because it has a really big lesson entwined with it. So it was, it was difficult as a genre issue to figure out how to how to pitch it to people in terms of the elevator pitch. I, I still struggle with it. How do I tell people what this book is? I used to tell people, 
that I was writing a memoir about other people's lives, which is <laughs> at some level is true, right? I'm writing a memoir, but it's all about other people in terms of who I met and what I learned from them. So it's kind of an intellectual journey. I called it a travelogue for a long time because I, I do think it's kind of a travelogue, an intellectual travelogue. Speaking of travelogues, are you familiar with Jan Morris? Yes. Do you know her? Have you read Conundrum? Yes, years ago. Yeah, yeah. She, I've mentioned her before on the podcast, but people who don't know her, she's, she's still alive as far as I know, but probably in her 80s by now. Um, and for years, for decades, she was the best-known travel author in the world. She wrote, uh, I don't know, a dozen books or more about different cities and cultures all over the planet and very accomplished traveler and a wonderful writer. What a lot of people don't know is that she um, was one of the first, I think, prominent people to have a sex reassignment surgery back in Morocco, I think, when it was only being done in Morocco. Yeah, I forget where she had it done, but it's a great book. A great yeah, yeah, she doesn't she doesn't mention it in any of her travel writing, but so many, you know, she knew people were very interested in that experience. And so she wrote this one slim book, Conundrum, about her life experience in terms of her, her gender. It's a beautiful book. I, I really highly recommend it. I don't know if it's still in print, um, but it's it's definitely available used, if not... Um, and I just thought it was so interesting. You know, you're talking about travel, intellectual travel. I've always thought it's so interesting. that Here's this person who's famous for traveling all over the world and immersing herself in so many cultures. And she's also traveled from male to female. Yes. You know, and so she's got this sort of deeply shifting perspective on things. Wonderful. Well, you travel a lot. I mean, do you find that, too, that it becomes a sort of metaphor for writing and going along a path? Um, I don't know. For writing, I, I haven't thought of it that way. I mean, it becomes a metaphor for everything, I guess. Or, <laughs> That's true. You That's know, true. just the shifting. I mean, I'm I'm hopelessly heterosexual, so I don't have you know, and I don't have that sort of gender flexibility that that uh, she certainly has, and other people have. Um, but uh, yeah, I wish I weren't. If if there were, if, and I've said this to Dan Savage and Andrew Sullivan, I've got so many gay male friends, and I was just like, man, you're gay envy, you guys. Yeah, if there's, I don't know what a fag hag is, if a male fag hag, but that's me. I don't, oh, there I, is a term for it, and I forget what they're called. Yeah, yeah. By the way, I, I have to warn you. I should just say outright, anything I say that offends people, it's not Alice's fault. It's purely <laughs> my fault. And anything I, I say that offends people, it's also Chris's fault. Exactly. I'll take it all. I'm fine with it. Because like you, I'm not an academic, or at least, you know, you're part-time. But um, I early on decided I would not last a week in academia, um, at least not in the United States. And I, I didn't, I, you know, I don't really live in the United States most of the time. So American it's culture. A, it's a strange world, academia, especially yeah. nowadays, because it's being oh so... Made into corporate life and, you know, complete with the cubicle experience and the terror of losing your job and all of the rest of it. So it's really it's really different than it was 25 years ago. And it's a very, very pathological place for the most part. So I like a job where I don't have to go to work, which is what I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I gave a talk down in Silicon Valley a couple of years ago. Um, it was one of these parties where like lots of rich, smart people get together every month and then they have someone come in and you know, like a theme to the party. So they're all learning. I think the month before I did it, um, 
like they had a professional boxer and they all went to a ring and learned how to box, you know, and then they go sailing and it's, you know, wealthy, smart Silicon Valley people do these stuff. So they flew me in from, I think it was in Vancouver. They flew me down, paid me really well. It was beautiful. It was amazing. And I was the entertainment, right, at this party. And uh, so I gave a presentation and just hung out and it was great and so much fun. And then they were driving me back to the hotel afterwards, the, the host and his wife. And, and I guess his wife taught at Stanford or, or they were on, you know, they like were big benefactors of Stanford or something. And she said, you know, what, why wouldn't you love to teach? I mean, I could talk to some people at Stanford and, you know, we could set you up and I'd had a few drinks by that point, and I, I said, like, you know what? I would end up sleeping with my students within weeks. <laughs> like, let's just be honest, you know? I don't, don't bother. It's not okay nowadays. Everybody did it, but it's not okay nowadays. Well, yeah. see, I have trouble just living in America. Getting back to your point about travel. Um, yeah. You know, I lived in, in, I've traveled all over the world. I lived in Spain most of my adult life and came back to America just a couple years ago. And we're still just sort of passing through. We're going back to Spain probably the end of this year. So I feel like an anthropologist, like in in a culture that I lived in in my past life. Yeah. So do you find it very sex negative compared to other places? Oh, my God. Oh, it's compared to Spain, especially, you know. Um, But compared to just about anywhere, I mean, even someplace like, you know, India, which is, you know, horrible in in much of their sexual politics and, you know, violence against women and all sorts of horrible stuff. But, um, you know, nudity is not a big deal. Uh, Women breastfeeding in public is just completely accepted and common. Um, You know, there's so there's so many things there's a um, a tenseness and a, a f- like a tendency to get freaked out about stupid little things in America that is really striking. Yeah, the moral panics that uh, keep sweeping over us are quite something to watch in terms of freaking out. I mean, part of it for me is, you know, thinking about orientations that are orientations that you can't morally um, follow through on, like pedophilia, right? Which I think it's pretty clear to us now that that's a real orientation and that it can't be changed. And so just trying to think about how do you manage those guys? You know, how do you how do you help them in such a way that they don't offend and don't abuse, but at the same time, you know, not treat them like they are total trash to be burned to death? But in this country, we can't even have that conversation. Like the second I try to have conversations with people about that, their attitude is kill them all, kill them all. And it's like, you know, (laughs) your son, your father, your brother could be a pedophile and you don't know it because maybe they're really careful and make sure not to indulge in any of the things that are illegal or immoral. But that doesn't mean people around you don't exist with this kind of orientation and can't do anything about it. And, you know, I think for people like that, it's just so remarkable to me that they have this sort of attitude that feels very Salem witch trial-y to me. Yeah. There's a quote that we, we used in Sex of Dawn from Schopenhauer that I come back to over and over again, which is that um, we can choose what to do, but we cannot choose what to feel. Right. Uh, yeah, another translation is we cannot choose what to want to do, right? So, and I think that that elemental acceptance of the difference between what we feel and our behavior is something that America still hasn't really gotten around to. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it's tough because you, like you're saying, it's like okay, pedophilia or 
rape fantasies or, you know, they're, in sexuality, there's so many examples of things that turn people on, but they don't really want to do it in most cases. And in some cases, they do want to do it, but they are looking for help to not do it. And like with pedophilia, there's no place in America where you can, as far as I know, that uh, someone can go and get help to not act on those impulses. No, and in fact, clinicians are often caught in a bind where they're, um, to some degree, required to report certain things, even if... I mean, it's nebulous in some places, but there definitely has to be a place where clinicians have to be available to help men who have that orientation and want to not offend. And we don't really have that. Canada has that now, thank goodness. But the U.S. is so far behind on so many things sexually, as you know. It's just so crazy. I mean, the fact that we have gay marriage after Ireland is just so painful. (laughs) (laughs) And long after Spain. Long after Spain. Spain was way out in the lead, yeah. And Spain is like... Mexico. I mean, that Mexico would accept gay marriage nationally, or at least the the court did, you know, before ours. It's just so stunning because these are Catholic nations where you would think it wouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, now I was I was thinking the other day, I was, um, for this book, I was reading uh, the Unabomber's Manifesto. Oh, wow. And... um, and it struck me because I, I downloaded that and printed it out. And then a few days earlier, I had uh, downloaded and printed out the Pope's recent thing about the environment. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of reading them together. And I mean, they're very similar documents in a lot of ways. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, the Pope and the Unabomber are like, you know, 99% in agreement, you know, Um about what we're doing, where we're going. And when you've got that kind of spectrum of agreement, like that, yeah. there's something happening there. Yeah. That's true. Um, what were we talking about? Oh, sex, uh, kids and sexuality and all that. I had a guy on the podcast a while ago, uh, Steve Herman, very interesting man. Who's a, he's an academic in Hawaii. And um, he often testifies as an expert witness in cases involving um uh, was sort of uh, v- sexual violence against children that's been um, alleged. And mm-hmm. he f- is very uh, attuned to the hysteria around this in American society, where there's so much, you know, those, uh, what was it, the McMartin case and, you know, all that sort of crazy cult-like uh, belief systems that seem to emerge like mushrooms after a rainstorm in this country where, you know, all these allegations of kids being ritualistically tortured and stuff that turn out to be completely baseless after people have spent years in prison. Yeah, in the book I talk about Elizabeth Loftus, who's the psychologist who is one of the main ones who worked on this issue and tried to show that so-called recovered memories actually can be implanted in people, particularly children, if you just make enough suggestions. Um, and she was really taken a task for that by the whole industry that's into the recovered memory movement, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it is kind of amazing that, like, we ever believed this stuff, right? The kids were taken and shown giraffes and brought to secret dungeons and all the rest of it during their daycare. I mean, it is remarkable what we're capable of believing when it comes to sex. And also what we're capable of disbelieving in the sense that you know, there there is so much abuse around us that we disbelieve and then we believe the sort of fantastical ones. And I don't know, it must speak to the way our sexual brains work. Well, that's what I was I was getting at. There's something, you know, as much shit as Freud gets these days, there's something very deeply Freudian about our our attitudes toward sexuality and children. 
You know, there's this very, like, this vehement denial that kids have any sexual consciousness whatsoever. And yet, you know, yeah, go ahead. This is playing out, I think, in a really dangerous way in the clinics that deal with kids who have gender dysphoria. So kids who express being the other gender from their, their body type. Um, because what we know historically, for example, is that most boys who act effeminate as children and say that they're girls actually grow up to be gay men, not to be transgender women. But I think it's because we've gotten to this point where we think, you know, it's all about gender identity and not about sexuality that we can't consider the possibility, oh, this is just a gay man in the making, or this is just a lesbian girl in the making, in the case of girls. And instead we decide, no, it's not at all about sexuality, it's just about gender, and start enacting systems to, you know, shift them over which if somebody needs to be transgender and needs the interventions, it's definitely life-saving and really important. But the data would suggest to us that most kids who end up in these clinics actually will not end up transgender. And so you've got to ask yourselves the question, like, are we really helping them if what we do is decouple sexuality and gender and assume that a gender presentation that's atypical is all about gender, not about sexuality. Because I think you're right, kids do have budding sexuality, and we don't know what to make of it. And But by not dealing with it, we don't do them any service in terms of pretending that it doesn't exist. Right, right. And it's so much like our war on everything, our war on drugs, the war on terrorism, failing to acknowledge the legitimate origins of these things and just go bomb people and thereby make the situation worse <laughs> or throw people in prison for nonviolent, you know, for getting high with, I mean, I was with friends yesterday, my sister and her husband, we're, we're doing a road trip and we were talking about how, oh, as of last week, marijuana is completely legal in Oregon, right? And nothing changed. Nothing's That's happened. Right. Same and, with Colorado, right? Nothing, nothing. The world has not fallen. Exactly. Itself. There are no like hippies, you know, running wild and you know, raping and pillaging. Everybody's just doing the same thing they did before, except not getting arrested for it. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, it's it's amazing. These things come and it, after decades of destroyed lives for nothing. And then here we are. We finally accept the reality, which was obvious to most thinking people decades ago. And. I don't know. I'm going to start ranting. I mean, very similar to the attitude towards homosexuality, right? Exactly. Lots of of lives destroyed. And finally, in the end, you know, what happens? We recognize it's just a normal variation. Consent is really the issue. And God, if we could just in this country get to the point where we understand the issue is consent, right? That that's, that's what we need to care about, not what people are into, not what they're doing. The issue is consent and otherwise leave people the hell alone. But we're still not there. I mean, even with even with gay marriage passing at the level of the Supreme Court, I think people really in that case ended up deciding that the issue was gay people are human, which is true and good, right? But not the idea that sexuality should really be about consent and about getting the government out of our out of our faces where sexuality is concerned if people are consenting. Yeah, and that sexuality isn't about making babies. Yes. I know. My son's class still it's so bizarre because this the state of Michigan where we live in the law about sex ed, calls it sex ed. But in our local district, which is technically a very progressive district, they call it reproductive health. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, they did just vote to change it. My husband went to a school board meeting and was like, step number one, change the name from reproductive health to sex ed. Recognize this is not about reproduction, right? Reproduction is a side effect of sex. And one of the things we can manage, but sex is not the same as reproduction. But we're still at that point, I think, where people people bizarrely still think of it as mattering. 
Yeah. Which is weird because historically speaking, we're in the best shape ever in terms of being able to control for reproduction. It works really, really well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so how do you, how do you get into, was that, was that your phone that just got a message with the, nope. oh, it must've nope. been mine. I thought we had the same sound of uh, messages coming in. I was going <laughs> to, cause it's the sound of like taking a cap off a bottle of beer. And I was like, oh, good for you. Alice, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good sound. <laughs> um, Let's talk about how you got, how, I mean, it would be very easy to just run rampant with all our, our ranting about how crazy America is. But how did you get into this position you're in? How did you become a bioethicist? Uh, I'm not really a bioethicist. Oh, you're not? I saw you described as a bioethicist, a historian. That I am. I am a historian. Oh, okay. My PhD is actually in history. The reason I don't call myself a bioethicist is because the field of bioethics has been taken over by money-grubbing scumbags, and so I don't like to associate with them. Um, What I do is actually patient advocacy, which unfortunately is extremely different from bioethics. A lot of bioethics today is actually apologists for the medical industrial research complex, so I fight that group on a regular basis. So I was was raised by right-to-life activists on abortion picket lines, and so I was raised to do activism and to really use my freedom of speech and freedom to protest and all that, and ended up uh, going to college and dropping out after a year, became a mortgage broker for five years, which isn't in the book because my agent said everybody would be horrified to learn I had a mortgage brokering past. But I used to write mortgages. And then I went off to graduate school uh, in history and philosophy of science and, at Indiana. And I started doing my work on um, the history of hermaphroditism, so biological conditions where people are not typically male or typically female or other organisms where they're in between. And uh, my advisor said, you know, look at humans. So I did. And I was shocked to find all these cases in the medical literature of people who were hermaphroditic because I had never heard of it. I was like 25 years old. And I thought, how weird that I've never heard of this, that it was shoved in the closet so much. So I started writing historical pieces about what I was finding. And the people who had been born with these conditions today started to contact me. And this was in the mid-1990s when the intersex rights movement had just started. And they asked me to help change the current day medical system, which was very abusive. It involved lying to patients about their history, doing cosmetic genital surgeries on little kids to try to make them look normal that were very um, risky physically. Um, Just doing a lot of stuff that was very backwards in terms of medical ethics of the 1990s. And so I thought, you know, we'd, we'd go to the doctors and we'd be like, hey, your intentions are good, but your system is very 1950s and you've got to change it. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, you're right. We should change it. But instead, their response to us was... You don't understand. These kids are abnormal. The parents get very upset. There's no way they can go in the locker room. We have to change them all, so get out of our faces. And that really pissed me off. Um, I have a low bullshit tolerance. And so I became one of the leaders of the intersex rights movement and um, did a lot of work within the movement to try to change the medical system. To some extent, we succeeded in terms of changing attitudes, but practices have not changed very much. So I'm still 20 years later working on that, although I work more on the inside now than I used to. So... There's some hope, as do a lot of the activists, they've been now more working on the inside of the clinical system. So that's kind of how I got into doing activism as well as academic stuff. And then um, that got me into sort of sex research areas. And then um, when I was thinking I was retiring from the movement about 10 years ago, which I did not successfully do, um, I ended up doing a history of this controversy over Michael Bailey uh, because of a book he had written on transgenderism that 
had made him very unpopular among some transgender activists. And I, I thought looking into that history that it would be kind of a he said, she said thing, that Bailey would be sort of a clod and not realize that they were offended and that what they said about him, you know, might be a little over the top. But instead, I ended up spending a year of research just on this, doing over 100 interviews with people, looking into what the documentation told me. And what I found was that the people who came after Bailey actually charged him with stuff that wasn't true and nearly ruined his life because he was putting forth an idea that they didn't like. And that was the idea that some men who transition to become women do so for sexual reasons, not for just for gender, but because they have something that Ray Blanchard, a sex researcher, called autogynophilia, which means they're aroused by the idea of being or becoming women. So they're turned on by the idea of being female. And that some of them transition for this reason, which is a sexual reason, not a simple gender identity issue. So they went after Bailey. And when I published my work, which I was scared to do because I'd seen what they did to him, they, of course, came after me. And so... That was a very bizarre experience because here I had been one of the darlings of, you know, the LGBT side of politics. And suddenly I was held up as a eugenicist trying to kill intersex people and that I was anti-trans and anti-LGBT and I was closeted and I was really a Catholic agendaed person, which is bizarre because I'm an atheist. <laughs> so they really came after me and my family and my friends and my colleagues. And so I had two choices. And one of the choices was to hide and the other choice was to proceed. And I decided um, that I had to proceed because it seemed like this was something, first of all, I couldn't hide from and keep doing the work I wanted to do. But secondly, that there must be other people like me and Bailey had been through this. And it was very quickly clear to me that that was true. I started putting out the word that I was looking for other researchers who had been attacked. And immediately I was flooded with stories. So I started traveling around the country interviewing researchers who had been under similar circumstances. And that was really um, life-changing because I had been very much an activist and it really put me sort of on the side with scientists that I had previously criticized. But I started realizing what they had been through for being conveyors of messages that were unpopular in terms of politics. So that's kind of the story the book tells. And at the end of the book, I actually go back to intersex rights work because I get alerted to a researcher who was actually doing an incredibly unethical bit of work. She was telling parents a particular prenatal intervention had been found safe and effective and then getting federal funding to see if it really was safe using them as research subjects. So the bait and switch going on. Yeah. So it, it tells kind of that whole arc of a story. Um, so Is that's that kind work of, still being done? Yeah, she's still pushing it. Um, I mean, I've myself and my colleagues have managed to sort of blanket the world with information about what the truth is. The, the There was a study done really of this intervention in Sweden, the only one that's ever been done at all appropriately, and it's finding a 7% mental retardation rate among the kids exposed to this intervention in the womb and a 18% severe adverse event rate, which means almost one in five of them have major medical problems probably due to this intervention. So that stuff's becoming better known. But if a parent doesn't search the internet or doesn't believe what my side has found, then they end up in this system where they're told by this woman still to this day, she's in her mid-80s, she still tells people it's safe and effective and they should use it on their children. to try. It's meant to try to prevent intersex development in the female population with a particular condition. But seven out of eight of the kids hit with it won't even have the condition. Yeah, I was happy to see that the, the New York Times review of your book mentioned her by name and, and the research um, which I'm sure yes. helped get the word out quite a bit. Yeah. Her name is Maria New, and she she's a pediatric endocrinologist who works at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. It, it's um, Have you met her in person? 
We met many years ago, uh, bizarrely. Um, I remember it was the year 2000 because I was at a meeting where uh, I was pumping breast milk in the bathroom, which is a weird thing to do if you're in a meeting full of endocrinologists because it's a very hormonal thing to do. But um, but yeah, I, I happened to come into the meeting late because I'd been breastfeeding my kid who I was leaving with my mother earlier. And, uh, and when I came in, she was holding up my first book, which was a criticism of uh, her and her colleagues in terms of the way they were treating intersex kids postnatally. And she was telling everybody this is a terribly important book and they should all read it, which really confused me because it was a direct criticism of her. But I thought, okay. But then her work just proceeded in terms of just trying to sex normalize every child who came across her way. And the, the treatment she does here is totally aimed at sex normalization. It's not doesn't save these kids from a disease. It doesn't save their lives. It's just basically meant to prevent intersex development, which is a huge risk to take. It's the first trimester intervention with a big steroid. It's an incredibly crazy risk to take, especially outside of clinical trials with these, this population. So that, that work was the most upsetting work in the book, and I didn't expect to even do it. And it came along sort of late in the project, but I felt like I had to go do it. And it really helped me understand better why activists still have to exist, why we can't just say, oh, activists should shut the hell up and, you know, researchers do what they want, that you still need activists checking researchers for unethical behaviors. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, because the, the, people can convince themselves of anything. You know, if, if, if their career is based on it, it's amazing what otherwise very decent people can convince themselves of. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you read, uh, there was a book called uh, Just As God Made Him. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, as Nature Made Him. As Nature Made Him. Okay, <laughs> good. Yeah, you're more familiar God, than I am, apparently. You're confused, God and Nature. Yeah, it's a great book by John Colapinto. Have you, he's a friend of mine. And, oh, it's a fantastic work. Yeah, yeah, he's wonderful. He, and you and he have something else in common. He also has written extensively about the Amazon Yes. Yes, he has. Well, I haven't written about the Amazon. I've written some about the controversies about yeah, the Amazon. Exactly. So he has yeah. a lot more experience with the actual place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah as, so as Nature Made Him tells the story of, uh, in case you're, some of your listeners don't know, the story of David Reimer, who was born an identical twin male, not intersex, just a typical male. And at the, about the age of eight months, he and his brother had a minor problem with their penis called phimosis. And the typical treatment for this is a circumcision, which is a, a medical reason for a circumcision, and it's usually not that big a deal. But the doctor who did David's circumcision botched it and burned off his penis by accident. And so then you had this boy without a penis, and the system said, according to what they did with intersex kids, that a boy without a penis couldn't be a real boy, so they recommended sex changing him into a girl, which they did. And then did the same system they did to intersex kids, which was basically lie to him, not tell him the truth of his history, sex change him, and hope he never found out. And John Money, who was the psychologist working on the case, lied to his colleagues and told them that everything worked out fine. This was a normal girl. She had developed interested in boys because that's what normal girls are supposed to do. And she was girly and wore a dress and blah, 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 helped her mother. And none of that was true. Um, David Reimer actually was very depressed, very suicidal, knew there was something different about himself. And at the age of 14, his father confessed to him what had really happened. And he immediately took on a new male name and decided to be a boy uh, or go back to being a boy. But, of course, couldn't get his genitals back and couldn't get that part of his life back and ultimately ended up killing himself a couple years after Colapinto's book, which was quite sad. 
Yeah, yeah, and and John, I, I don't remember the details, but I uh, I think John and he had a deal to share the money from the book, um, and and he was his cooperation with the writing of the book was all very. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to leave the impression that the book uh, depressed him or or made him suicidal. It, it was no, uh, you know, what the only thing I really regret is that we didn't push harder to make. David Reimer talked to other people who had been through similar things. But to the end, Reimer was pretty convinced that his story was unique and nobody else had been through anything similar, even though intersex kids had been through very much the same experience, really, truly, very much the same experience. Yeah. Um, had, you know, had been experimented upon by money in the same ways, had been put through the same awful treatment in money's clinic, including being forced to watch pornography and being asked, who do you identify with? I mean, as children. And very much abused by John Money. So, you know, we didn't want to interfere with David Reimer's privacy. But when he killed himself, I really genuinely regretted not having just pushed ourselves on him as intersex activists and kind of forced him to talk to other men who had been through similar things. Because I think he was still psychologically really isolated, even though the, the, the book in many ways made him famous, but left him isolated, not because that's what Colapinto intended, but because Reimer continued to see himself as a unicorn. Yeah. And he wasn't. And so I really regret that we didn't rally the troops and force them on him in terms of peer support. But that, that brings me to a, an interesting point. Um, this question of forcing the activists forcing themselves on him and, you know, pulling him into something that he didn't necessarily feel he wanted to do. So much of your work, it seems, is about the negative effects of good intentions. <laughs> like 99% of my work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, even John Money, it, it, I've read some of his work and he was a liberal in those days, he was, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was seen as someone who was a champion of the the oppressed and trying to bring, to open uh, minds to other possibilities and, you know, gay rights and uh, different kinds of sexual configurations and things. You know, he was, he, he was on our side, you know, whatever yeah. side that is. He was the darling of the feminists because yeah. his message was gender is about nurture, not about nature. And so he was beloved by progressives who at that time all believed gender and sexual orientation were about nurture, not about nature. I, absolutely. I don't know that money's intentions were good. He's kind of a creep based on everything everybody who knew him has told me. But certainly people like Maria knew her intentions have been quite good, I think, in terms of trying to give better lives to these families. Most of the people who do harm in the world actually have good intentions, which when you wake up every morning as somebody like me as a historian and you know that, the world every day is a little scary because you realize your good intentions do not save you from doing terrible things in the world. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I've been, I was trying to have a conversation with that with my Twitter followers today with regard to there was this person who posted something that was very problematic and she couldn't kind of see why what she had said was so problematic. How do you get people to understand that evil in the world is generally, just statistically speaking, is often not committed by people who are bad people, but by good people who just can't see that they're self-interested or they're conflicted or they just have something wrong about the way they're approaching it. It's very, very hard. It's hard to watch the human species in that way. Well, I, and I take it even one step further and say, how do we know that we're right? Yeah. You know, I, how do you think, know that your perspective is the right one? You know, I know. I don't I don't think you can. And um, that's. <laughs> 
that's where the historian appreciates that death eventually comes, right? Because <laughs> you don't have to watch in the long Certainty, run. Certainty, finally. Yeah. Were you right or were you wrong? It doesn't matter because you're dead and you don't get to see it. So, yeah, yeah I'd rather not live an eternal life personally because eternal life would mean I'd have to actually find out if people thought. And you'd never, you'd never get to the end, right? Your views would eventually be forgotten. But the question of were you right or were you wrong would be constant turnover, I think. Yeah. I think there are some some signs. I, I mean, I think coming to any sort of final analysis of, of who's right and who's wrong is very, very problematic. But I think there are signs like, for example, humor. Right. If there's if there's a debate and one of the people like I can't figure out who's right and who's wrong, but one's funny and the other takes himself seriously. I always go with the funny one. <laughs> isn't that isn't that remarkable? I think that's why I threw a lot of I mean, I'm, I like to tell jokes and be funny and stuff. But I think that's why there's a lot of that in my book, because I think you're right that that's the average intelligent person's perspective is the person who's joking around actually knows what's really going down. They're the person who really knows the truth. Well, or they're the person who knows how elusive truth is. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. so much of humor is about uh, what do I know? I'm full of shit, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So if, if there's no self-deprecation, then that suggests insecurity. It suggests overcompensation. It suggests, you know, that I'm being bullshitted here. But if there at least if there's uh, self-deprecation and humor and some because that suggests a humility that to me is is very close to wisdom, if not wisdom itself. Maybe it's as close as we ever get. But. Um, yeah, again, there, I think there's a there's a gender aspect of it that's tricky, right? Because women who are too self-effacing are seen as weak and pathetic. But if they're too self, if they're not self-effacing enough, then they're seen as overly confident and bitchy. So I think for men, there's a bigger ability to do comedy than for women or to do humor than for women. And I certainly find that in my own writing that I have to I have to hoe a really careful line in terms of how much I'm self-effacing with regard to my humor, because too much and I look weak and too little and I look overly confident. So mm. and maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think that's true. And I think that's part of the reason why women comedians have a harder time than men, because men have a sort of wider range in terms of our culture, what they're allowed to do in terms of their public image. Mm, that's an interesting point. Yeah. I yeah. definitely found that in the editing of my book, my editor and my agent took out a bunch of very feminine uh, scenes where I cried or was really frustrated and felt really defeated and they got kind of neutered in terms of the gender those scenes became neutered so that they weren't quite so feminine in in portrayal because they felt like you know the average reader won't like this about you <laughs> where the average reader is a man right although women judge women pretty harshly too but um but it was interesting the ways in which the book had to, i had to sort of degender myself in the book in order to tell a narrative that would be a kind of universalizing narrative which to me is funny because i'm a feminist and to take the gendered parts of myself out feels very fake, especially when I believe gender is actually largely inborn. It felt fake doing that. Yeah, I, I, not that I would ever second guess an editor or a publisher, but <laughs> that sounds weird to me because my understanding is that most of the people who buy books are women. Yeah, although nonfiction, a lot of men buy nonfiction. Oh, it's a fiction versus nonfiction yeah. thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I have, as I imagine you do it, uh, you know, when you chafe at people telling you what to do and how to express yourself and all that, publishing is an interesting place to be, you know, because on the one side, it's like, yeah, we want you to do this because you're so good at being you. And on the other side, it's like, yeah, but tone down the you a little bit here. 
You know. Yeah, I had I had good editors. My agent is especially; she's a professional editor, so she's really good. But also, the editors I had at Penguin were really good. And what I appreciated was that there was a lot of broad stroke editing. They they said, you know, the the basic message was indeed less you, more it. And I thought, well, that's right, right. So I tried to do that within there. But I think you're right. It's the the way that your ego gets caught up with your writing editing can feel very invasive and hostile. <laughs> yeah. So, Sometimes violating. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so getting back to humor, um, you know, you, you describe this trajectory of your career so far that involves a lot of the people you were working with sort of turning on you. In, in some cases, the, you know, the transgender community that, you, you know, when you came to Michael Bailey's defense, suddenly you were being attacked and, and you know, in very vicious ways. Um, one of the things you, you asked earlier about my impressions of America, one of the things that really strikes me is how humorless a lot of the, the public discussion is, particularly in academia, and um, particularly around gender and, and sexuality. Um, I, I'm sort of, you know, we wrote this book as complete outsiders in every way you could possibly be an outsider, and then suddenly we were like in the center of the cyclone in some ways, you know, I would give talks and all these people would come up after and say, you don't understand. Dan Savage is the enemy. Oh, right. You I know. know. I I'm get like, that all the time. Dan Savage is the enemy. Yes. Yeah. Like, Oh, why? Cause he, you know, said that a lot of the people he knew growing up who claimed to be bisexual were actually gay men who hadn't come to terms with it yet. Oh, that's why he's your enemy. I mean, give me a break here. Yeah, I, I definitely ran. And so the the people I worked most closely with didn't turn on me. And in fact, a lot of them asked me if they should rally to my defense. And what I had to say to them was no, because first of all, nothing would come of that, right? It would just be a lot more battles of he said, she said that I didn't need, nobody needed. But also the, the friends of mine that were working on intersex rights, I said to them, you know, that work is too important to be sidelined by this shit. And so please go do that work. And that's the best way you can honor me. But um, and that that worked out really well, but I, I think you do find yourself suddenly in these storms, and people think that there are simple sides to be taken, and you get shoved into one side or another, and it, it's a very weird experience because you're like, wait a minute, I I don't know this person I'm being encamped with, right? Being aligned with, although Dan, I do know, um, and I'm always happy to be aligned with Dan, but it, it's a very bizarre experience sometimes and very disorienting. But the people, especially out in the Twitter universe, my experience is they want very simple yes and no categories, black and white, pro and con. So when I write anything that has any subtlety about vaccines or about any drug or about intersex or whatever it is you know there are people who are like you're the enemy now and yeah. it's, it's exhausting it's yeah awful. yeah it's strange and and i don't know if it's all uh you know tempest in a teapot because a lot of it obviously if you're an academic you've got a job to lose and and you, you know people being hounded out of uh, all sorts of positions for for you know a bad joke here or there whatever but um, for me, it doesn't matter. I don't have a job to lose. So, um, well, it's certainly a time suck. Uh, yeah, and, you have time to lose. That's true. Yeah, and and it does create climates of fear. I mean, most people are not bold and not willing to you know live the alternative life. They want to have the standard life. So it does create that problem for a lot of researchers. Um, certainly, that's that's very real. So, what do you think about uh, male circumcision? Do you have a strong position on that one way or the other, or are you in the middle? 
No, I lump it in with all other genitals. I think you don't mess with other people's genitals unless you have a legitimate medical emergency issue. And otherwise, you wait to get consent on whatever it is. And I can't believe that in this day and age, we still do routine neonatal male circumcision. I really can't. Yeah. Um, I started writing about that, God, 10 years ago or something. I did write a cheeky piece called Proof That I Like Penises, and it was about not circumcising my son. <laughs> Why well, I didn't circumcise my son. Um, and it was a joke on how people think because I study sex, I must be a lesbian, because that was the assumption back then, right? If you study anything about sex and gender, it's because you have issues. They used to call it issues. Yeah. It's less of that today. Uh, but no, you know, my feeling was such frustration when people would say to me, well, I want him to look like my husband. And my attitude would be, well, then grow him a beer gut and, like, shave his head so he's bald in the front, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And then they would say, but uncircumcised penises look funny. And I would say, I totally agree. Knees also look really weird, but like you can get used to them, right? And you, this is not a good reason to cut your kid is because something on them looks funny. My whole work is about not cutting things that look funny. Let the person decide themselves. And and then there's the stuff about, you know, prevention of STD transmission. It's a fairly ineffective way to prevent STD transmission. But even if you want to do that, then you can absolutely wait until a kid reaches puberty and ask him if he wants to do that as a way to prevent disease transmission. So, and, you know, just like with the HPV vaccine, my feeling is the child should consent because they're old enough to do so. And most of them, if given the facts, will consent to HPV. Many will not consent to circumcision because they'll recognize that the foreskin contains a lot of sensation and that it's not a particularly effective way to prevent disease transmission. And so they'll elect against it. Are you in the same place? I don't know your position on circumcision. Well, I'll tell you what, if you had asked me as a 13-year-old if I wanted to have any piece of my penis surgically <laughs> removed, uh, it wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought about it very long. Exactly. Um, so, well, well, but I'm not sure that's that's what you think, that I mean what you think. I mean, I'm saying, like, nobody's going to say yes to that at 13, you know? Um, or 25 or 35 <laughs> or 45 with good reason. The foreskin matters. Yeah. Yeah. So but but there are a lot. I mean, I wouldn't have gotten braces either. And now I'd be a buck-toothed idiot. And now, you know, now I am a straight-toothed idiot. I'm not sure. <laughs> You'd just as popular, and people wouldn't think you're an American because your teeth wouldn't be so straight. So that would. Right? Um, I, I'm I'm caught in the middle with circumcision. I have to say, and and the reason it came to mind, you were talking about how you know you sort of say something, and suddenly half the people think you're the enemy, and you you end up like on the wrong side of debates and things. Um, you know, I'm circumcised, and. I agree with you, uh, everything you said philosophically, I, I you know, like, like um, don't just go cutting people's bodies off uh, for no reason that, you're, you know, or it's for cultural uh, normalcy. Like a lot of people don't know that this is American, you know, it's not just Jewish and Muslim, it's American, right. you know, British, French, Spanish, it's not happening over there. Um, and so that's not a medical reason. People think it's a medical reason where actually what it is is an artifact of the war on masturbation that was fought so vehemently in this country and lost dramatically, obviously. Um, you know, what's his name? Uh, the guy who recommended sewing the foreskin together and uh, Kellogg, you know, crazy uh, With, by the way, a little bit of money incentive thrown in. So circumcisions have historically been charged for, and there's something that historically a lot of obstetricians did, and they got a little bit of extra money on sure. the side. That's not to say that's why they did it, but we do know that financial incentives in medicine do change practice. Well, hell yeah. And we know that, you know, since uh, cesarean uh, deliveries become so popular in this country, far fewer women have babies on Sundays. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Coincidence, right? Yeah, right. Hey, golf day. Fewer babies are born. What a- so, so what do you think is good about circumcision? Um, I, I must say, uh, elective circumcision done without a child's consent, what do you think is good about it? Uh, wait a minute. Elective without, oh, without, I, I don't think anything's good about it. Um, okay. But as a circumcised man, I find that some of the arguments against it don't hold water. Oh, right. The ones that say like massive loss of sensation, you right. never really feel your penis. Yes. No, I agree. Yeah. Um, I feel my penis every day. And, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> at least once a day. And when I was a teenager, believe me, you know, uh, too little sensation was not an issue. Right, right. So so people saying making that argument that like, oh, you you know, you're missing out on so much sensation. Like, wait a minute. I think that there, you know, I think sensation is something that uh, reaches a threshold. And, you know, there's nothing past that threshold. It's like you can only feel so much heat on your skin before you can't you're just burning. You can't feel anymore, you know. Well, the studies of men who as adults have been circumcised, they do on average report diminished sensation. So that does suggest that there's something there. We also know in terms of the homologue, uh, so the female clitoris also has a hood, which is essentially the foreskin. And that's actually the locus of sensation, the, the most intense sensation for many women. They don't actually, when you study them, which Masters and Johnsons did, they don't actually uh, stroke the clitoris. They're using the hood of the clitoris because it's so hypersensitive. So it does suggest to us that there probably is a lot of innervation there in the foreskin. And it it probably does add a substantial amount for many men with regard to sexual sensation. Mm. Um, but mostly, I, it, for me, it's a principle of don't don't cut stuff off if you don't need to, um, yeah. unless the person wants to have something cut off. You know, I, I feel the same way about pierced ears. When I see pierced ears on a baby, it just freaks me out. Like when I see pierced ears on a 10-year-old, it doesn't bother me. Like if she's decided or he's decided to get pierced ears, that's cool. But like on a baby, it just bothers the crap out of me because I think, you know, to the greatest extent possible, it makes sense to leave kids' bodies to themselves and to acknowledge that it is their body, not our body, and to teach them to have self-respect and to understand that that's the body they're in charge of and we need them to take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Playing devil's advocate, you know, I would say, well, think of all the crazy distortions that are being applied to babies' brains, you know? Uh, Yeah, it's true. We do shape our kids in all sorts of ways. Yeah. We we do that stuff. And we we change their bodies through nutritional stuff. We certainly change their bodies through vaccinations in ways that I think are Sorry, and delivery, you know? Yeah, yeah. Choosing not to breastfeed a child, you know, as a man, I mean, I'm way out of having any qualification to discuss that. But my ex-girlfriend had a baby not too long ago and we were visiting with her and her husband and she was talking about, oh, no, I'm not going to breastfeed. You know, that's too much trouble and da, da, da. And it's like, hey, it's none of my business. But wow, I I feel like that is kind of close to child abuse. Um, you yeah. know, in terms of the the microbiome and the, you know, the, that kid could have all sorts of repercussions throughout his life because of this decision that you're making right now out of, you know, a sense of convenience. And again, I'm saying it's not my business. I'm not a woman, you know, and I respect women's rights to make decisions like that. But I do sort of look at it from outside. And to me, that's I get the same feeling you get about seeing earrings or something, you know, it's like, damn, you're hurting that kid, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, I certainly support breastfeeding, but I, unfortunately, I think we don't have the cultural systems to support women to do it appropriately. I mean, when you look at Europe, as I'm sure you've seen living there, that the maternity leaves are so much longer and oh, allow yeah. for so much more in-home nursing help, et cetera, lactation help in the home that's much more readily available to the average woman. And so there's huge amounts of support for breastfeeding there that historically would have existed. I mean, historically, we know in terms of traditional societies that women have enormous amounts of support systems when they have babies. And that includes people taking the babies while the woman can sleep. And that includes bringing the baby when the baby needs to feed and all of the rest of it. And for the way we live in America today may feel very convenient. Certainly, I don't want to live with my in-laws or my parents. But that said, there's no, the, the, with them not being there, there's very little support system. And I found breastfeeding very difficult because I was really isolated and it was exhausting and the kid needed to be fed at night and I wasn't getting enough sleep, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, convenience yes that's that's one way to talk about it but i think it's a it's a serious difficulty for some women in this country so when yeah. i when i see them not doing it i think well if we had the systems maybe maybe the choice would be different yeah yeah no question and and you know you mentioned earlier you're in the bathroom at a conference pumping Pumpin'. breasts yeah Which i mean sucks. it's like come on what a sucks. hassle that is totally sucks what really sucks is that my mother recently cleaned out her freezer and found 15 bags of breast milk that we forgot about that were in there. <laughs> I was like, damn it! That was from that conference and it, I worked hard pumping those damn bags of milk and we had to throw them out. Oh, no. Did, even give to anybody, yeah. Did that, yeah. I mean, how does that feel? Did the throwing it away, did that feel like a part of you was being wasted or something? Well, I worked so hard on breastfeeding it felt like, it felt like throwing away a perfectly good book, book manuscript, to be honest. <laughs> It was really, really painful. It was like, oh, man, so much work went into those those little plastic sacks. I, I remember walking into the kitchen at a party years ago and people I didn't know and uh, walk into the kitchen. And as, just as I walked in, this one woman says, oh, I hate that when your freezer breaks down. And the other woman said, yeah. And my placenta was in there. <laughs> I thought that's where you were going. <laughs> Rats. Rats, the things people have in their freezers. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes have my dead pet rats in the freezer when we're waiting for the weather to thaw to bury them. So, yeah, uh, yeah. weird shit in their freezers. No, that's what her situation was. She was saving it to bury it out in the backyard during, you know, in spring thaw. And, uh, yeah, the freezer broke You just down. want to label it carefully. Not food. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but it is food, you know. What you know? Again, getting... oh, recent study showed no benefit from it. Really? Yeah. yeah Tell it no to benefit. like all the mother mammals who eat their placentas. I, I found that really interesting. They looked at humans, and they, the claim was that it has no nutritional benefit. But I, I, it did seem odd. And so, like, you do have to ask the question: Why do other mammals do it if they're not getting a big protein hit? I would think they are getting a big protein hit. Maybe they do it in part to get rid of the smell that would attract a predator towards them. So it may be part of you know throwing those empty eggshells out of the nest kind of phenomenon where you're trying to get rid of the smell that might attract a predator. Yeah, although, you know, given the way nature works so often, I, I would be very surprised if the placenta didn't include nutrients that the mother is in need of just after giving birth. I mean, things just tend to fit together that way. I don't know. We don't drink the amniotic fluid, man. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty yeah, nasty stuff. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can take these things too far for sure. I definitely had no interest in eating my placenta. I just wanted to go to sleep. Yeah, yeah. Um, do, do you have any sort of, uh, are you interested in the whole paleo movement? Speaking of 
placenta eaters? Well, I I do find it interesting. I mean, I'm I'm gluten intolerant, lactose intolerant, severely um, for both nowadays, and so I appreciate the paleo people because I can eat what they're eating most of the time. But uh, the whole microbiome stuff, I think, is really interesting, and we're going to have to see where that goes. It may be overplayed. Um, but I do think there's a lot to be said for trying to understand how our guts relate to the rest of our bodies. Um, there, people go pretty far in this stuff. I'm sure you've read this stuff where people think there's a link between the microbiome and autism, where they think there's leaks with regard to moods. That said, I must say that I've had my own weird experiences with food, such that I do think food is very um, has the potential to be very reactive with our with our brains, which only makes sense. I mean, when we take tiny little amounts of drugs, it can change our moods. So why is it not possible that for certain foods, tiny little amounts of some chemical in the food could change how we feel? For me, um, casein, which is the protein in milk, makes me really angry. Um, it also gives me migraines, which doesn't help. But um, before it made me have migraines, I used to get really, really pissy if I was accidentally exposed to casein. So I think people with food issues, I, I take everybody at their word these days and say, whatever you do or don't want to eat, I'm not going to ask. And I don't want I don't really want to hear it, right? I don't want to hear the whole backstory of why you think you can or can't eat this thing or will or won't eat this thing. I just go ahead and give people what they want. But I think um, the, the paleo movement is interesting because it does try to take seriously our historical roots. That said, we've changed our food so much. You know, we've changed the, the contents of fruits and vegetables, for example, so, and even meat so much because of breeding, because of selective breeding. It's not like the foods we're eating today are really the same exact foods that we would have eaten in the past. So yeah. who knows? Yeah, yeah, it's different. Just the amount of stuff we would have eaten would have been so much less, and the patterns in which we would have eaten would have been so different. So it, it's a little, little bit silly. But on the other hand, I think eating real food is always a good idea as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to take things too far. And, and you're certainly right that, you know, there's there's very little in common uh, factory-raised cow and, a, you know, a free-range buffalo or something. Right. Well, cows didn't exist, of course. Right <clears throat> yeah. So it was kind of... I just... I, it does always flash me back to this moment with my brother when we were... We must have been, like, in our late child middle childhood as they call it so we would have been about 10 and 11 years old or so and we're sitting there finishing off a box of devil dogs together and he's reading the label and he looks up at me and he goes you know alice every now and then the human body just craves polysorbate 80 (laughs) 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 just kind of cracking up and i still think of that when he and i are together because it's like we try to eat so healthy nowadays and like and yet the food industry knows what you crave. And in a weird way, polysorbate 80 is part of what the human body craves. So I can't. Can't trust the body. No, no. <laughs> Vinegar and salt potato chips. That's the one nowadays that gets me. Yeah. yeah. Pretty sure that's not paleo. Yeah. Beer is my weak point. I, uh, yeah. Although beer, you know, there is evidence of beer like two, three thousand yes. years old. But beer is paleo. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> paleo approved. Get some fermented berries. I think that's it's certainly mushrooms. If, you know, paleo, we're talking about paleo buzz. I think mushrooms and maybe some ayahuasca <laughs> and some weed. Those are all good. But um, all right. Well, we're, we're running out of time. I don't want to take up your whole day here. But how do you feel? I, I mean. You know, you've looked so much at sort of the underside of the research community. And you, you, we were just talking about studies showing the placenta, this and that, and, you know, the different food uh, fads that are coming and going. And I mean, I, I feel for myself that I've read so much research that I 
almost don't trust anything. Do you ever feel that? Do you do you ever feel sort of outrage fatigue and like, my God, there's so much, uh, you know, corporate funding of, of universities and research centers. And it's hard to know what's real and what isn't. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I, I think that when you start really thinking about what we do and don't know, you end up with far fewer medical interventions in your life because you start realizing that so many medical interventions are, in fact, based on no real science. So, yes, I do get burnout, especially around medicine, especially around the care of myself and my kid and my husband. And, and we're all very scientifically oriented and, you know, ask the questions about necessity, safety and efficacy. And I try to convince people to do that. But I think where I get the most exhausted is people assuming that when they go to the doctor's office, that somehow what they're being offered is scientifically based when they haven't asked the question. When often the physician hasn't bothered to ask, ask the question. It's just what they were told to do and they haven't really thought about it. So definitely. Um, I mean, all in all, science does seem to be getting us moving forward. A lot of what we know is reliable information in the sense that when you use it for something, it works. But yes, there is a lot of crap research and a lot of assumptions about what is true that doesn't actually have any research behind it. And that's worrisome and concerning, definitely. That's not true for all areas of medicine. Vaccines, for example, are really well studied. And so that's one of the areas of medicine that looks pretty good. But there's a lot of areas in medicine that are totally irrational, like birth is a great example. The way birth happens in America is so unscientific. And you look to Europe where they have socialized medicine, the birth is much more rational there, looks much more sane in terms of the science. Um, but if you start looking carefully, I think you, you do become more skeptical. And then and there is the outrage exhaustion problem, definitely. Birth and also, also death. Yes. Death the American too. death industry is completely nuts. And again, very corrupted by financial considerations. Totally, totally crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. American medicine is just such a such a blindness and the fda has just been really falling down on the job lately so that's also upsetting where their their attitude increasingly is this very republican attitude of buyer beware but that's not what the fda is supposed to do the fda is supposed to be there to protect us not to say buyer beware but this that, that whole that whole republican attitude from the 80s forward which was this idea that you know capitalism should run wild infected a lot of areas of american life where that became really dangerous and that's one of the areas where i think it really is dangerous today yeah. Well, when Reagan was reelected, that was when I left the U.S. Makes sense. Makes sense. We thought about leaving when Bush was selected by uh, by the Supreme Court. Thought maybe that that's the end of it for us. But yeah. we didn't. We didn't leave. My husband took the test to see if we could go to Canada. It turns out we could. So we thought about it. <laughs> but mm. I really like my house. <laughs> <laughs> Materialist. I know. Yeah, I yeah. worked really hard on the curtains and all that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. I, I mean, I really admire what you're doing. It's it's very it's very difficult, I think, to address the pathologies of a culture that is itself pathological. Yes, I agree. You, you know, to to like pick them out one after another. I, I mean, personally, I kind of feel like. The ship is sinking, and you know I'm. I, I don't. I, I mean, the ship, the whole global ship, uh, appears to be sinking. I'm not as optimistic about progress as I think you are, but um, it's you know there's nothing better you can do than to to fight against the dying of the light, as they say. What 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 do you see in the future? Do you want to continue in the same sort of work you've been doing, or do you want to shift to a new uh, a new front? <laughs> 
Well, my husband and my closest friend are both trying to convince me to quit writing nonfiction and write fiction for a while to give myself a break. So that's an interesting possibility. Uh, do you um, have an idea what sort of fiction you'd want to write? Oh, yeah. I've been working on a lucrative mystery series idea for years, yes. <laughs> lucrative is key. Um, yeah. These years of non-lucrative, but, uh, you know... I think I would probably suck at writing fiction, but it's nice. It's a nice idea to just take a break, mostly to take a break from the real world because the real world is so difficult to witness. Um, yeah. But right now, I'm contracted to write a short book, a fifteen thousand word book on sex ed for Amazon as an Amazon Kindle single. So that'll be fun, and that should come out in the fall. So I'm looking forward to that. And then I'm not really sure what what comes after that. My kid is now fifteen, so I've only got three more years with him at home, hopefully. Um, <laughs> And so I'm, I'm trying not to take on too much stuff in the next few years. Uh, once he launches, I think I'll have a lot more time. So that'll be cool. Yeah. I know I sound like an old-fashioned mother, but, you know, when we had a kid, I, I didn't think my maternal instinct would kick in quite as much as it did. And I really enjoyed having another human being to get to know. And, and as I tell people who say, why the hell would you ever have a kid? When I tell them how much time it takes, how exhausting it is, how you keep getting sick, et cetera, et cetera, I tell them because it's one of the few culturally sanctioned ways you get to fall in love all over again and nobody gets mad at you. <laughs> well, you're still partnered to your partner and you get to fall in love with somebody brand new who delights you and amazes you and gets to know you and loves you back and all of the rest of it. And so it's it's been a super rewarding experience. So I want to finish that off as well. Wow, I've never heard parenthood described as polyamory before. I think it kind of is. You yeah, know? that's nice. And definitely the ways in which when you have the baby as a woman, you your sex drive naturally falls a lot. I think in part because the baby really addresses that in terms of the physical cuddling. That We know the hormones are similar in terms of the satisfaction hormones, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there there is a lot of ways in which mother love is the original love. Evolutionary biologists say that, that romantic love grew in evolution out of maternal love and so um, the love we think of as partner love would have derived evolutionarily speaking from mother love and I think they are really similar and it's it's you know that's not to say motherhood isn't difficult and people shouldn't should go into it with great trepidation because it is a lot of work and a lot of exhaustion a lot of heartbreak but at the same time it's like really great having that whole love experience is great and then you know then they grow up and they grow apart from you and it's cool <laughs> you have a good breakup. You go to college. Yeah, you, you pay for the breakup, but it's, <laughs> you know, we, it's cool. hey, you always pay for the breakup. Uh, <laughs> did, have you seen Boyhood? No, I have to see that. I uh, hear it's fantastic. We just yeah. watched it the other night. Uh, I've been wanting to see it for months. Just watched it the other night. It's really beautiful, very beautiful, and very much about you know obviously what you were just talking about. Um, but my thought after seeing it was that the film could easily have been called Motherhood. Yeah. Because it's very much about her experience and how, you know, the the kids are growing up in the context of her relationships and her going to school and her getting a job and her being a teacher and her, you know, it's like her life is guiding this trip that these kids are on. And um, yeah, and then there's, there's a scene, well, I, I won't talk about it, but, you know, it's very much about the mother's experience. A beautiful film. Oh, my God. Really beautiful. Um, yeah, motherhood is a pretty pretty awesome experience. I mean, I I didn't expect that. I you know I thought I wanted to have a kid because I liked my partner so much. I thought it'd be cool to have a kid together. But it's been a really good experience, in part because I think I made the right choice and decided to forego money for sleep. Um, and that was that was definitely the right choice to be able to 
not try to juggle a full-time job with a kid. Uh, and I was lucky enough to have a partner with enough money to be able to do that. Most people don't, but it was definitely worth the foregoing of the money to get some sleep, you know, to have a libido and everything was great, which yeah. a lot of my friends don't who were working full-time with kids. Well, you talked about earlier, we were talking about breastfeeding and you, you were focusing on how the, the sort of cultural structure doesn't exist to, to make that as easy a decision as it really should be. Um, and I think the same thing about parenthood. You know, if we had, yes. you know, Sarah Hurdy, alloparenting kind of uh, lifestyle, I would love to have kids, you know, kids that, you know, you can pass off to other people when you're tired of them and you take care of other people's kids and they sort of come and go. And, and, uh, and I think it's wonderful for kids as well to have relationships with multiple adults who all love them and watch out for them and, you know, bring different sorts of experience and conversational style to the kid. And I would love to be involved in something like that, but, you know, well, not... It took me a few years to realize that my friends who were saying, you know, give me your kid, that they were serious. And once I started doing that and living in more in that parental style where the neighbors would take the kid or, you know, whomever it was, and we'd trade kids, et cetera, et cetera, we do cooperative parenting and that sort of thing. It did become much, much easier. And it was really great because yeah. not only that, but like at the end of the day, you have your own back and you always like them the best. So <laughs> In some ways, it's really great because you get that that experience of other people's kids, and naturally, you always think yours is the best, and so it it's, just works out great at the end of the day. But yeah. you're right; I think we the system we have now, although it feels very much like the highest civilization to us, it is really costly in terms of sleep when it comes to having children. And once you have a kid, you realize why the only thing parents of little kids talk about is sleep. You suddenly realize, oh, that's why that's all they talk about because it's constantly interrupted. What's well, costly to everyone, I think, to everyone involved, you know, because it, it exhausts the parents or parents, you know, in many cases. And uh, and the kids end up with this sort of isolated upbringing where they're always like at school, they're with kids their own age or they're with these adults. Mm -hmm. And so they miss that mixed age kind of experience because, I mean, no one is as, as um, impressive to a 10 year old. As a 12-year-old. Yes, that's very true. <laughs> you know? And so yeah. we send them off, you know, like, oh, no, it's a bunch of 10-year-olds and a 40-year-old. So yeah. What the hell Absolutely. good is that? Yeah, our school district has tried to get past that and started doing mentoring partnerships and that sort of thing. But you're absolutely right. I know it's, it's very true. It gets really weird when you get that situation. Yeah. And, and kids don't know how to deal with each other across the age groups. So. And also, I mean, bringing it back to your, your point about uh, being similar to relationships and, you know, polyamory or whatever. Um, one of the points we made in Sex at Dawn is that when you have kids that are growing up in an environment where they've, yes, they've, they know who their biological mother is, but other women breastfeed kids in hunter-gatherer groups, you know, pretty freely right. and easily. And uh, th there are a lot of sort of parental um, bonds that form with different adults that have no biological connection whatsoever to the kid. You know, it's like uh, you're in the same clan or you've got the same spirit animal or these things are often much more important than biological. Who's the brother of your father or whatever. And um, so it makes perfect sense that those kids who are being raised in an environment in which they have these multiple bonds with adults would later develop multiple erotic bonds with with their peers right yeah so, although doesn't the incest taboo to some extent prevent that among the, the individual group 
Um, well, that's what a lot of this, uh, the spirit animal and the clan stuff happens. Depend, different tribes have different uh, ways of doing it. Yeah. Um, but often the incest taboo is dealt with the same way chimps and bonobos deal with it, with uh, female exogamy. Generally, mm -hmm. the, the, when the woman reaches sexual maturity, she leaves the group she was born into and goes off and joins other groups. But there's so much sort of fluid movement between the bands uh, among hunter-gatherers uh, that it's very sort of easy for women to not be having sex with um, siblings. Although also siblings are sort of hard to keep track of, hmm, you know, because the, the like in tribes, for example, we talk about partable paternity where m different men can all fatherhood is considered a group um, activity, like four or five different men could all consider themselves to be the father of a child. Right. Um, right. You know, because they think that the fetus is made of accumulated semen. So the woman has sex with four or five different men, who all of whom she thinks would add some uh, positive essence of themselves to the baby. And then when the baby's born, all these different men will acknowledge their their paternity of the child. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Interesting ways of looking at things. Anyway, we're we're going on here. Uh, thank you so much for making time for this. And thank you. Uh, this is fun. Yeah, I'd I'd love to talk with you. Maybe you know when your book comes out on Amazon in the fall, we can do it again and talk about that. Great, I love that. Galileo's, yeah, I just Galileo's middle finger: heretics, activists, and the search for justice in science. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. All right, we'll talk soon. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and appreciate your support for the podcast, especially those of you who do it through fundwhatyoulove.com, where you can set it up to take a buck, five bucks, ten bucks, whatever you can afford, whatever you feel motivated to throw at the podcast every month. Uh, you don't have to think about it. It's an ongoing thing. You can cancel at any time, of course. That's fundwhatyoulove.com. That's run by Danny Osment, who also does the sound engineering for the show. You can find him at emeraldcitypro.com if you have any engineering, sound engineering needs. He's great. I vouch for him, of course. He's been doing the sound engineering for this podcast for over a year now, completely voluntarily. Uh, he's a cool guy. So if you have any business you want to throw his way, please do. Thanks to Basin and Range for the opening music. You can find them at basinandrangeband.com. Uh, there's a Reddit tangentially speaking discussion group. If you want to talk about episodes, throw a question at me, get a conversation started at Reddit. Just do a search for tangentially speaking, all one word. And of course, thanks to Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts, another guy who's been supporting this podcast from the very beginning when I had about 15 listeners. He was there. He's still there. And uh, I love him. Never met the guy, but I love him. And I sure as hell love his shirts. So you can get his shirts at shoredesigntshirts.com. And of course, all the shirts that are at chrisryanphd.com are made by Shore Design T-Shirts in Thailand and packaged and shipped to you by my mom, Julie. Uh, say hi to Julie if you order anything. She loves it when that happens. And of course, last but not least, thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear, Smoke Alarm, which reminds you to carpe fucking diem because you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. 
for example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation, running from a confrontation? Dance into the ground.